So true confessions this morning. Let me ask you, how many of you are American Idol fans? Let me see your hand. Oh, how many of you are just ashamed to say you're American Idol fans? Okay, there's the rest of you. So everyone probably American Idol fans. You know, the thing that amazes me about American Idol is that tens of thousands of people essentially line up for hours on end at all of these different regional tryout sites for the privilege of being rejected. I mean, when you think about it, that's exactly what they're doing. Ultimately, one person ends up not being rejected. Everyone else is going to spend the next period of time being rejected and uh, humiliated by guys like Simon and, and some of them. And they don't always say real kind things. Uh, they're not always very encouraging. Sometimes they even uh, make comments on appearance and weight and different things unrelated to a singing voice or whatever. But they still, year after year, line up for the privilege of being rejected and humiliated. It's amazing, particularly when you consider that uh, rejection can be a very painful process that can have lingering effects in our lives. In fact, it was spring of 1980 on the campus of Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington, about 27 years ago at this same time of year that I really personally experienced the very painful, the, the painful process and, and stab, really, of being rejected by someone I cared about. I've been going out with this girl, not my wife, but I've been going out with this girl for about three years. And I mean, I thought I was in love. I mean, I thought we were going to get married and, you know, live probably not happily ever after, but we were going to give it a shot, you know, because we didn't get along all that well. But I thought, you know, marriage would change all of that. But we've been going out for three years, and one day in the spring, she called me in my dorm room and said, I need to talk to you. Can you come over to my dorm? I said, sure, no problem. And so uh, before I left, she said, but don't come to my room. I'll meet you in the lobby. And I thought, whoa, well, that's kind of strange. Maybe she has a surprise for me, you know? Maybe there's a, a gift involved or something. And so I go across campus, and I meet her in her dormitory, and there she is in the lobby. She says, here, we need to go over here. And in, in the lobby, there was this little uh, kitchenette, this windowless, closet-sized kitchenette. And she took me into this kitchenette and closed the door behind us and flipped on the light. And then my beloved girlfriend proceeded to tell me that I was fat and I was ugly and she didn't, wasn't interested in me anymore, and she didn't want to be in a relationship with me, and she basically banished me from her life, just like that. And I thought, well, this has got to be a joke. You know, it's close to April Fool's Day, and I thought, ha, ha. But it was not a joke. She just said very kindly, you're fat, ugly, uh, I don't think you have any self-respect left, and I don't want to be in a relationship with you. And then she left me alone in the kitchenette as she left. And I have got to say, I was absolutely devastated. I mean, I was devastated. It was like someone had taken a machete and just cut me to ribbons. And I was just left there crying in this little kitchenette. And I ran back to my dorm room and I remember calling my mom. And my mom hated this girl. I mean, she hated her. And now I know why, you know, because she was a despiteful, hateful woman. But in spite of that fact... When I called, my mom started crying with me and said, oh, Sam, I'm so sorry, because I mean, I was just absolutely devastated by this rejection. Now, I would like to say 
that in the years since 1980, that, that that was really the last rejection I've experienced. And since then, I haven't had to navigate the painful process of rejection in my life. But that's not the case, because since that time, I have experienced several other, in fact, many other rejections. I've been rejected by close personal friends, which really, really hurt. I've been rejected by uh, co-workers in ministry. I've been rejected and hurt by members of congregations that I serve. And, you know, every one of those rejections leaves a little bit of a mark on your life. It changes you a little bit. It hurts you and it leaves certain scars in your life. But my guess is I'm not the only one who's experienced the pain of rejection this morning. My guess is every single one of us here at one time or another in some relationship or some experience, we've also had to endure the pain of rejection. Maybe it was the painful rejection of a spouse that we were actually married to and they rejected us. Maybe the rejection wasn't as blatant as, as my girlfriend's rejection, just saying you're fat and you're ugly and I don't want to be with you anymore. Maybe it was much more subtle, but just as devastating by doing something inappropriate that they shouldn't have. And they sent that message that they no longer loved you, but loved someone else. Maybe for some of us, it's been rejection by our own family members. As a result of some difference of opinion or some different course of action we've taken and there's been a disagreement and we've been ostracized or rejected by family members. Maybe for us as parents, it's a child that's rejected us, rejected the life that we've been uh, encouraging them to lead and rejected the values that we instilled in them as they grew up. And whatever form rejection takes in our lives, it is a painful experience. And the reality is with rejection, we can allow it to mark our lives for the long term if we're not careful. Rejection can end up lingering with us so that we no longer trust other people and we can't enter into meaningful, intimate relationships because we withdraw into ourselves and we become paranoid and think everyone is going to end up rejecting us. And in an effort to protect ourselves, then we wall ourselves off and we don't experience the joy of relationships as God intended us. To experience them. You know, we've all heard the phrase that he's a marked man or she's a marked woman. And what we're saying when we use that phrase is we're saying that something that they've experienced has marked them. When we've been marked by something, it's left its impression upon our lives or it's left its stain on our lives. To be marked by an experience is to have it leave its distinguishing characteristics in and on our lives. And as a result, all of us here are marked people. We've all been marked in one way or another. Some of us by rejection. Some of us have been marked by things like suffering, which we're going to talk about on Palm Sunday. Some of us, obviously, all of us have been marked by our family of origin. The families that we grew up in have left their distinguishing characteristics on our lives, have left their impression on our lives. But regardless of the kind of rejection that you've experienced, it can be a very painful process that marks us for the rest of our lives. And this morning, I want to talk about how is it that we can move beyond the pain of our rejections? How is it that we can transcend 
the rejections that we've experienced so that they no longer control us. They no longer dictate our lives, but we can actually find freedom from those kinds of rejections and the pain and the marks that they leave on our lives. And so this morning, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Because I believe as we prepare ourselves for Resurrection Sunday and Easter Sunday, I think there's some truths that we can learn about resurrection that will help all of us move beyond the rejections that we've experienced and the pain that has marked our lives as a result of those experiences. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting this morning that you can just simply erase all of the pain of previous rejections or that somehow you're just going to be able to erase the scars that have been left. I don't think those scars ever leave. I think they become a part of who we are as people. But the reality is we can move beyond them, even though they're still there. We don't have to allow it to control us any longer. And we can move beyond rejection to find joy and peace and meaningful, intimate relationships in spite of the fact that we've been rejected by others. And I think there's two truths that will help us do that. And the first truth is this. We need to understand that Jesus was marked by rejection. Jesus himself, God in human flesh on earth, was marked painfully by rejection. And in fact, the marks of Jesus' rejection are still with him. Though he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, he still bears in his physical body the marks of rejection. They haven't been erased. They haven't gone away. But he's transcended. His rejection. He's transcended that pain, but he knows what it's like to be rejected. And I want you to follow along. We're going to kind of uh, progress through chapter 26 and and 27 with some kind of big steps here as we look at different uh, passages of Scripture and see how Jesus experienced rejection. First of all, we know that Jesus was rejected by the leaders, the spiritual leaders and the clergy that he came to serve alongside and to. uh, Introduce God's kingdom to and with. Look at chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. It says, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, Passover begins in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. At that same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly. And to kill him. But not during the Passover celebration they agreed or people may riot. This is amazing. These are the priests of the people of Israel. These are the people who were waiting for the Messiah to come. These were the people of all people that should have eagerly and excitedly welcomed Jesus as the Messiah and say, we've been waiting for you. Welcome. Serve with us. Let's introduce God's kingdom and the gospel of good news to to the people that are suffering. But instead, the very people who should have accepted him first and most were the first ones to reject him. In fact, not just reject him, but they actually began clandestinely plotting to turn him over and to have him murdered. Jesus knows rejection. But secondly, he was also rejected by his hand chosen co-workers, people that he'd actually handpicked to live with him, to serve with him. And yet they were he was betrayed and rejected by one of them. Look at verses 47 through 50. 
It says, and even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had, been given, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I signal and greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed, and gave him a kiss. Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you've come for. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. You know, amazing. You know, we might think, well, Jesus was God in human flesh. He knew that Judas was going to betray, betray him even when he picked him. Well, that's true. But Jesus was also 100% man, flesh, and the pain of being rejected by someone so close, so intimate that had lived with him and served with him and eaten at the same table for three years. And then, of all things, to betray him with a kiss. A sign of intimacy and friendship and companionship. And to use that as a sign for rejection had to be extremely painful for Jesus. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. But that's not all. Jesus was not only rejected by a co-worker, but he was rejected by his best friend on the planet. Look at chapter 26, verses 69 through 73 or 74. It says, meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. Now, this is after the betrayal. And they've taken Jesus to the courtyard, to Caiaphas, the high priest, to, to begin judging him. And Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came over and said to him, you are one of those with Jesus, the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. I don't even know the man, he said. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and said, you must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. Peter swore. A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. I mean, it's one thing to be rejected by these priests and these elders who should have welcomed him. It's another thing to be rejected by Judas, the traitor. But it's an entirely different thing then, on top of all that rejection, to be rejected by your best friend on planet Earth, Peter. And not just once, not just twice, but three times and with a curse saying, I don't know this person. At the time when Jesus needed friends the most, his best friend rejected him and betrayed him. And not long after that, all of the other disciples would go into hiding, rejecting Jesus as well, running for fear that they would be associated with Jesus. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. Fourth, he was rejected by his own countrymen, his own people. Look at chapter 27, verse 15. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? 
He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. And jump down to verse um, 27. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And the crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. So now Jesus is being rejected by the very people he came to give his life for. He came to pay the penalty for their sin. And even as he's in the process of doing that, he's being rejected by those very people. And then finally, to make matters even worse, after rejection upon rejection, Jesus is rejected by his own heavenly father. Look at chapter 27, verse 45. So at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. And about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Imagine that. God the Father turning his back and rejecting his own son as he hung on the cross. Now imagine the fellowship that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had enjoyed from eternity past, just unblemished, perfect fellowship in the Trinitarian relationship. And at this point in time, the Father turns his back on the Son and rejects him as the Son bears the burden of all of the sin of humanity. And he says, Father, how could you have abandoned me? You know, Jesus knows the pain and the agony and the hurt of rejection. Because he has experienced more and greater rejection than we will ever experience in our lifetime. Because we know that God will never reject us. And yet God rejected his own son for us. So that we could enter into a relationship with him. About seven years ago, again, it was in the spring. It was actually May, seven years ago. Uh, I had spent a lot of years with a young couple. When I went to my a church in Omaha, Nebraska, there was a young guy on staff who was still in Bible college. Uh, he was on staff about 10, 15 hours a week, just kind of doing some service there. And, and he really didn't know what he was doing. He didn't, you know, know how to preach. He really didn't know how to plan or administrate or lead. But he really had a heart for God. And so they brought him on staff to work with the, the, the students and the youth as kind of a very, very part-time youth pastor. And when I got there as senior pastor, I kind of saw his passion, saw how much he loved God, saw how much he wanted to serve uh, the church and teens. And, and so I kind of took him under my wing and began to disciple him and spend time with him and take him to lunch. And we hunted together and we did all kinds of things together. I sat down with him and, and really taught him how do you plan an event or a program from the very, very beginning and put together a manual and, and you know, Gantt charts. And I mean, I just worked with him and everything, taught him how to preach and gave him opportunities to preach. And uh, as a family, we watched their children so that his wife could work to put him through Bible college and had them over for dinner. Just became very, very good friends. 
In fact, when I left that church and went to a larger church, I actually asked him to come along with me to take a position that was a, just a huge advance for him. And he didn't have his master's degree or anything. And it was just an incredible opportunity for him to exercise his gifts and to really kind of move along in terms of providing for his family. And so he came with me. And about two years after uh, he came, I'll never forget one day, he came into my office and said, I've got to talk to you. I said, well, what, what about? And I could tell that this was not usual because usually it was much lighter and, you know. And he said, uh, looked at me and said, why don't you like my wife? I said, well, what do you mean, why don't I like your wife? Of course I like your wife. No, you don't. And you never have. Why don't you like my wife? And I said, what are you talking about? This is ridiculous. I've always liked your wife. And he said, you know, because of how you've spurned my wife and how you have, you know, turned on her and ignored her, she has despised you for the last seven years. She's literally hated you. In fact, it's gotten so bad now that I have had to come to you because I can't even get her to come to church on Sundays anymore. And when she does come to church, she doesn't even want to look at you. And she says when she looks at you, it makes her physically ill. I said, what? I mean, this was I was totally blindsided and I just sat there totally dumbfounded. What are you talking about? Where is this coming from? I, I just couldn't couldn't believe it. And he said, just admit it. You just have never liked her and you've always ignored her and you've always kind of just brushed her off. And I said, I mean, that's not true. And if it's true, why isn't she coming to me and telling me this? So it was just an absolute mess. And so I immediately left the office, got in the car, drove her to their house and said, you know, what, what's going on here? How can you say that I don't like you or and that you have despised me for seven years and she wouldn't even talk to me? Well, it was an incredibly painful to have spent so much time with this couple, so much time with them, thinking that we were like the best friends, having hunted and camped and done all of these things together. And then to have this kind of thing happen, it was just absolutely devastating. I was so devastated, I couldn't even preach that week. We loaded the kids up in the car and we went to the Black Hills. And I mean, I just cried and cried and cried and, and just didn't know if I could even go on with ministry. It hurt so bad. If that kind of person would reject you and betray you. It's one thing when people who don't know you do it. But when someone you know and love does it, it really hurts. But Jesus knows that pain. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you feel like no one could ever possibly understand the pain that you've had to experience as a result of rejection. Maybe, again, you've been rejected by a spouse. Maybe for you, you found out that you were adopted and you've had to deal with what you view as rejection by a birth parent. And you think no one could ever understand the grief and the agony that I'm enduring because I've discovered that my birth parent rejected me and didn't want me. At least that's how you process it. And you just think, I, I, you know, I can't move beyond that. I, I just that shapes me. Maybe for you, it's a family member or maybe it's uh, people that you've loved, close friends. But whoever it is and whatever the rejection is, no matter how deep the impression or no matter how fresh the stain, we can move beyond our rejection. Because we know that Jesus experienced rejection. But the second truth we need to understand is that because of the resurrection, Jesus transcended his rejection. Jesus's resurrection transcended his rejection. And because of that, he could move beyond. And as I said, the scars are still there. 
the nail prints in his hands and his feet and the sword in the side. It's still there. And when we see him again, we will see the scars from his rejection. But it didn't define him. And because of his resurrection, he moved beyond that rejection. And the same can be true for us as well. Because we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we have been now marked by the resurrection. The Holy Spirit has sealed us spiritually for the day of redemption and we will be resurrected with Christ. And sure, those scars might remain and the pain might still linger, but it doesn't have to control us just like it didn't control Jesus. Even as he was hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. In our humanity That's impossible to do. In our own strength, we cannot really move beyond the scars and the pain of rejection. But in Christ, as we're marked by the resurrection itself and sealed by the Holy Spirit for that day of resurrection, we can move beyond. You know, that woman that I talked about, she has never, ever to this day apologized or said anything to me about it. She apologized to my wife, but she never apologized to me. But, you know, I'm still in relationship with them and I'm still friends with them. And after I dealt with my pain and and sometimes it's still there and you just wonder, why can't you talk to me about this? And I've tried, but I've chosen to remain their friends and to love them and to serve them. In fact, just not long ago, I helped him get another ministry position because I just feel like, you know what? I don't have to resolve this. I don't have to allow that hurt and that pain and that rejection to control how I treat them and how I serve them. Because I've been marked by the resurrection of Christ and I know that it doesn't have to control me any longer. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, we see how Jesus, because he was faithful to the Father and he was he kept his his Eyes on the future and focus on what God was calling him to do because of the resurrection. He transcended his rejection, and the pain in Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse five. It says you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Now he's talking to us. We have got to have the same attitude Christ Jesus had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father because he was faithful, because he didn't allow his rejection and his pain to control him. And he was obedient even to the point of a criminal's death. God elevated him and the day is coming when Judas and Peter and those elders and those priests and everyone will have to bow their knee to Jesus Christ and recognize that he is God, that he is the Messiah. So Jesus did not allow his rejection and his pain to control him. And in the same way, the same should be true for us in Romans chapter five or Romans chapter six. 
we read this. Since we have been we, since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our own sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. So the, the inclination for revenge, for getting even, for payback, allowing our pain to control us, that power has been broken because of the resurrection. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. And we are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. See, that's what the world needs today. The world needs people who can be spit upon, who can be rejected, who can be mistreated and unfairly rejected and still move beyond it and love the world in spite of the treatment that they dish out. And because of the resurrection, because we've shared in the death and the resurrection of Christ, we don't have to be under the control and the power of those sinful inclinations any longer. We can act like Jesus. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we can have the mind of Christ and we can live a different kind of life, no longer controlled by pain and hurt and, and the rejections that we've experienced, but rather the, the marks of the resurrection are deeper, the stain is darker, and, and the characteristics that distinguish us from the resurrection are far greater than any of the rejection or the hurt. That we've experienced in this life. You know, one of the people that just that just exemplifies this to me is Nelson Mandela. You know, Nelson Mandela was brought up in church school, went to a Bible college. He was a Christian all of his life, except for when he became an angry young man because of apartheid. He really rebelled against God. He rebelled against the church because he saw the injustice of apartheid, which, by the way, began in a reformed seminary. Apartheid was the work of Christians. In fact, to be in the apartheid government, you had to be a member of the reformed church. They were that closely linked. And, and Nelson Mandela thought, how could God allow this? How could apartheid, something so evil, be spawned by the church of God? And as a result, the anger just built up and he began to you know, resist the government and actually began plotting violent resistance after a while. And then he was caught and he was put in prison unjustly for 26 years. He was in prison. And for 26 years, God used that time to break him down, to get him back to his faith. He began reading the scriptures again and began to realize how Jesus had been rejected and mistreated unfairly, how he had literally given his life for people who hated him. They plucked out his beard and they spat upon him and they mocked him. And during that time in prison, God did an incredible work in the life of Nelson Mandela. And when he was finally released 26 years later, Rather than insisting on revenge, rather than insisting on justice, rather than insisting that they give, make reparations to him, he rejected that all and he moved way beyond it. And he called for the nation and all of his compatriots to forgive. Forgive. 
And it was that incredible act that brought apartheid down finally. After all kinds of boycotts and all kinds of violent resistance could not break apartheid, one man enslaved for 26 years comes out and forgives. And the wall comes tumbling down. That's the power of being marked by the resurrection and living that way. We can move beyond rejection. So what does it all mean for us? What does it mean for us in our daily life this week as we still maybe struggle with some of the pain, some of the scars of rejection? Well, three things. The first thing, I think, is to realize you're not alone in your experience of rejection. You know, when we isolate ourselves, when we think no one can understand, we withdraw into ourselves and build a wall around ourselves and say, I'm not going to let anybody else in. I'm not going to trust anyone. I was rejected by that other church, so I'm not going to get involved in another church. When we do that, it multiplies the pain of our rejection. And that rejection begins to control us. And it really begins to have a very negative effect on our lives. We've got to realize that we're not alone. Don't withdraw. Understand that Jesus knows what it's like to experience that kind of rejection. And then secondly, and I think this is a very practical, a very practical thing that you can do. And that is keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your focus during this race of life on Jesus who suffered before you and who's moved beyond it. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12. We read this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not given your lives in your struggle against sin. You know, when you start to feel sorry for yourself when you start to think no one else knows and you start throwing yourself that little pity party get your focus back on jesus who knows who's been there who's transcended it and allow the power of the resurrection to move you beyond the pain and the hurt and the controlling power of sin so that you can run the race with endurance and be christ to the people Around you, even the very people that have hurt you. And then finally, remember above all that you've been marked by the resurrection. If everyone else in the world were to reject you, you have been adopted by God the Father. You are holy and blameless to Him. You've been received into His family, and He will never reject you. And so remember that the resurrection makes everything new. And that because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can move beyond our rejection. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning and we just confess and recognize the reality of life on this planet. Living in a fallen and sinful world has left its mark and distinguishing characteristics on us and in us. But because of Jesus and the reality of the resurrection... It doesn't have to control us. 
Father, we can move beyond the pain and the hurt, the revenge. We can move beyond our rejection as we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the champion, the initiator of our faith, who, though he still bears the scars, moved far beyond his rejection and calls us to do the same. Father, might the world know that you are alive and real because we've been marked by the resurrection of Jesus and we live it every day. Father, make that a reality in all of our lives, I pray. Amen.